Hey, thank you for joining us today. This is Rebecca Tapia, your podcast host. If you're finding any value of this podcast, please do share it and leave a review. And also, nothing discussed here is formal medical, legal, or financial advice. And this is not a patient-doctor relationship. It is really just a couple of people sitting around, or maybe just myself, discussing difficult topics related to aging parents. Enjoy. Thank you so much for being here. All right, they won't be growling at each other. I'll growl back. Uh, welcome everybody. So I have a very, very close friend of mine here. Um, Renee has been really nice to come and share some of her stories. Uh, we've been known each other how long? Seven, 17, 18 years now. How <laughs> oh, has it been that long? Yeah, I, it's, it's been a minute and um, we've spent a lot of time together at, you know, eating lunch or having dinner on the weekends or just sitting around the pool. And I've thought so many times to myself talking to you that there must be 10,000 other women having the exact same conversation somewhere. And one of the things I'm really motivated by in starting a podcast like this is I think these conversations need to be out there. Um, I think as we've developed as professional women, as we've developed to have our own voice, as we've developed to understand our unique challenges it's been important to make this part of who we are and allow these conversations to come out um you know my inspiration is is you know being in a profession where people are fairly type a and have a certain persona at work and then knowing a different dimension of them and the dimension i'm most focused on is the dimension of how they're grappling with their professional lives, um, their children, and their aging parents at the same time. So could you just give us a quick, you know, sketch of your life, where you're from, kind of what your upbringing was, your experience with your parents, um, like what kind of brought you to this point? Sure. So I um, was from the Midwest. Um, my father was a corporate executive and he we traveled a lot when I was younger so that means that um, you get transferred almost every two years when you're a corporate executive on the rise so we lived overseas for a while and then we came back into the Bay Area of California and then settled in the Midwest uh, I went to almost I went to six different grade schools growing up until we finally moved back to Michigan which is where I stayed there through high school so I, when people ask me where I'm from, that's where I consider myself to be from, air quotes, because that's where I went to high school. And I was raised in a very um, conservative Catholic family. I had two parents. Um, my parents divorced when I was partway through college, um, but I would consider us to be a very traditional family. My mom stayed home until I was partway through high school. And then as my parents separated, she went back to work. What kind of work did she do? So she originally um, had a psychology degree. She gave up uh, her dreams of becoming a nurse because she wanted to marry my dad. And they got married relatively young. I think they were 22. So she, tell, she told me that she got the fastest degree that she could, meaning whatever her credits would count for, and that was psychology, even though she didn't have any 
aspirations to go on and actually be a psychologist. So for a while she worked um, as a bank teller when they were young and my dad was getting his graduate degree. Um, and then when we were young, she stayed home and then she went back to work, um, took some accounting classes and worked for H&R Block for a while um, as I was older and then eventually worked for a paper company um, as their office manager. Interesting. So one of the things I always wonder, and I know this is fast forwarding quite a bit, there must have been a point in your life where all of your colleagues were talking about, you know, raising kids and diapers and um, preschool stuff. And then there's a day where your colleagues are starting to talk about issues with their parents or assisted livings or, you know, other things. Can, can you kind of just talk about where you thought that transition might have happened? Did you always, um, you know, worry about how your mom would be taken care of? I mean, maybe we could start back and say, you know, I understand she's in an assisted living now in Florida, or can you give me a little more information on that? Sure, she actually lives um, independently. She's in an apartment. And I um, am very lucky in the sense that both of my parents are financially independent. Um, They both remarried and they uh, felt that it was their responsibility financially to provide for themselves, whether that meant living and aging in place in a home or whether it meant um, moving into an apartment-like facility. So my mom actually lives in a two-bedroom apartment in a facility in Florida that has multi-stepped care, meaning that there is also an assisted living facility, there's a rehab facility there, and then there's also a nursing home type facility. Can you talk a little bit about um, her second husband uh, and what he went through? He had a degenerative condition, right? And they were originally living independently together. And then they he were. And he was about 12 years older than she was. And he, they originally had a house on a golf course and he played a lot of golf and he developed Parkinson's. And so he could no longer play golf at that point. And he was finally willing to move into um, a place with my mother um, in Florida. And Florida's kind of known for having these levels of stepped care that you can buy into, but you don't actually own the apartment, but you sort of buy into the plan and can move through the different levels of care. And that was very important because he ended up um, becoming, he was falling a lot with his Parkinson's, um, and she ended up providing care for him in their apartment. Um, there were meals provided, there was a nurse on staff, and sometimes when he fell, uh, they were able to get someone to come up and, and, and help get him get off the floor, which was an, a big issue. And then when his needs increased, what happened in that sort of a setting? Well, as his needs started to increase, he was able to transfer to a different level of care for a period of time. Um, And by that you mean more care, right? Yes, he was requiring a lot of help with toileting, which is really kind of what breaks people. Um, We know that people that require help with their bowels and bladders, that sometimes family members are just uncomfortable doing that. Um, or they're uncomfortable with the amount of diapers that they have to change or with the embarrassment of having to care for someone who's either a parent or a loved one. 
um, in more, more of an infant-like stage. So he was able to go into a, kind of a step-down unit where he was able to get more help because he had a fall. And I think he had either a pelvic or a spinal um, fracture that didn't require surgery, but yet he wasn't very ambulatory and he was in a lot of pain. And right. so he was able to spend a couple of weeks in that facility and until he was able to walk a little bit better and then um, he returned to their apartment after that. Now you and I have actually never talked about this part, but I'm wondering, how did this issue come up with your mom? Did she email you one day just say, hey, we've found this great stepped <laughs> assisted living type situation. Did she ask for your opinion on it? Did she, how did she find it? Like, so was it, was there a discussion? Because from what I understand kind of culturally, your family is not really into like open discussions with difficult conversations, right? That's true. And partly the foundation for that had been laid down by her mother. So her mother and father had moved to a retirement community called Sun City in Arizona. And they had originally lived in Southern California. So they had a very small house with a pool. And then as they became older, they decided to move into a facility that had different levels of care, which ended up So this being, was your grandparents? This was my grandparents. So they modeled this sort yes. of- midwestern style i'll do for myself and correct okay yes and and make sure that i have enough money to, to take care of myself and my spouse and so that ended up being really important because my grandmother had a stroke and ended up in assisted living for almost a decade and so she had access to it and also access to a private room because she had like a prepaid plan and so my mom witnessed all of the preparation and planning that it took and the resources and decided that she was going to follow a similar path. So when was a stressful time for your mom? Like when, was this, did this happen when you were a child or in high school? No, or? I was actually part, part of the reason why I went into my chosen medical specialty was that my grandmother had a stroke when, when I was in medical school. In medical school. Okay. So yes. you saw her go through this so I dealing with her own aging that. parents. Okay. I think I was maybe a second year medical student and my mom had gone, my, my grandfather had died on Christmas day. And then my mother had gone with my grandmother on a cruise the next Christmas. And on Christmas day, my grandmother had a stroke oh my on the anniversary of my grandfather's passing. Wow. So yeah. Um, and she lived, she, they were in the Caribbean and she was, I think, treated in Puerto Rico and then went to a hospital and rehab facility in Houston and then eventually stabilized and was able to live in an assisted living for, I think, a, almost a decade she survived after her stroke. So there was not really a modeling or an expectation in your family that, that you were going to inherit the care for your, your aging parent. And it sounds like a lot of that was related to, you know, sort of their resource management during life, which was going to be that they prioritized or they had in their value system that they would have enough resources um, and make those decisions to be in situations where um, an institution or a healthcare setting would take care of them versus coming to live with family, which is very different, you know, in different cultural settings. Yes. Um, so that's what was modeled on your mom's side. 
Yes, and so, yes, my mom felt it was very important that she have enough resources to take care of herself in the manner that she chose. So whether that was aging in place in a home, you know, for my mom, a lot of it was um, she didn't want to take care of a house anymore and she didn't want to cook. And so when you move into a independent living facility, a lot of times everyone eats dinner together in a dining room area. And so, and even lunch if you choose. So a lot of it was giving up the, giving up the cooking and the socialization for her was, was very important. And what age would you say she was when she went into this independent living setting? Do you know? Yeah, um, she's 80 now, and I think she was um, maybe 75, because her, her husband was, was significantly older. Do you have any idea how much it costs? Has she ever discussed that with she you? She did. It was actually quite expensive to buy in. So I think it was about $250,000. And then um, there's still a monthly cost that's associated with living in the apartment. So it's and almost like buying an insurance policy? Kind of. Sort of? Like you're going to, they'll take care of you through almost every stage? Correct. Do they like, have a hospice unit there? I don't know, and I think they're building a memory care unit because they didn't have that before. Okay. So okay. it's almost like you're buying into the club. So there's a large six-figure investment up front, mm -hmm. and then there's some, maybe on so many people, that they're sort of on fixed income after that. Yes. And there's no Medicare or Medicaid coverage for that. This isn't something that's functioning as, as, a, as sort of a traditional health insurance, right? This well, is if you get sick, so interesting that you bring that up because my mom and her husband um, both got COVID and Medicare did pay. They actually had an acute care setting uh, where they could admit them to a different part of the building and they could get care for COVID, which was really important because at the time the emergency rooms um, and the regular hospitals were jammed Okay. And um, I was involved in part of that decision making because the CNA called me from her retirement facility and said, I'm really concerned about your mom. She's got COVID and she's not doing very well. Mm -hmm. And so I told her, we'll go up to her apartment and I'll call you up there, but bring a stethoscope and a pulse oximeter and we can get some objective information of how she's doing. And it was very interesting because her husband was already in the acute care unit um, with COVID. And then when I was talking to my mom, her oxygenation was not where it needed to be. And I asked her, you know, why won't you go to the hospital like your husband? And she said, because I don't want to have to pay for it. And the CNA said, well, you'll, Medicare will pay for this because you have COVID as a diagnosis. And so... And she really needed to be there because she needed to be on oxygen and she needed to have some monitoring. So once that barrier was removed, she said, okay, I'll pack up my things and I'll, and I'll go. So she was actually on the acute side for probably two weeks or so. And her husband ended up um, dying from COVID during that stay. Wow. And so that the, the husband with Parkinson's, right? Correct. Right. Yes. Interesting. So um, let's go to your dad's side. So how is 
how are aging parents handling that side? Now, your dad is sort of a jet setter, right? And he's yes. also 80. Um, so that's very interesting because my grandmother, who's his mother, just never talked about things like that. And she actually told me, I'm never going to die. I remember. <laughs> how, did, how did that work out for her? Right. Well, you <laughs> we know how that worked out. But it was a very strange conversation that I was having with her because she was getting a carotid artery fixed. And I said, you know, Nana, do you have a will? And she said, oh... I'm never going to have those discussions with you, granddaughter, even if, even though you're a doctor, she said, because I'm going to live forever. My grandmother didn't really plan. And so I remember telling my dad, okay, this is how this is going to go down. Like, this is what I see happen is that she's going to trip and fall and she's going to get a non-surgical pelvic fracture. And then she'll be in a skilled nursing facility and then her she'll use up her 30 days and then where will she go and, and what ended that, up happening that's exactly what happened oh my gosh and so it turns out she had bought another apartment and it, it was not an assisted living and they were they wanted her to walk to get her meals and my father called me and said you know she she won't get up and walk to her meals and i said well put her on i want to talk to her well, she was, she was so short of breath, sitting in the bed, she couldn't walk to the meals. And as it turns out, she had end-stage pulmonary fibrosis. Oh, my gosh. And nobody really understood that this was a terminal diagnosis for her. Until I basically explained, because he said, well, you know, they're not putting her on oxygen, they're not doing this. And I said, Dad, it sounds like, you know, Grandma's at the end. And he said, well, no one told me that. I actually said, Grandma's circling the drain. And he said, did you just tell me my mother's circling the drain? And I said, well, yeah, that's kind of how we refer to it. But, you know, and she died about a week later. So there's the other piece of that side of the family, which is in complete and utter denial. And so, you know, my dad insists I'm never going to live in a facility, assisted living. I, I'm never going to do those things. But there's, there's sort of this unclear, unclear plan of of who's going to facilitate that. And in most cases, when you're a man, it's your wife because right. it's sort of assumed that you're going to live a shorter lifespan and that your wife will take care of you. So let's talk about that. So I want to talk about your perception of gender roles and caring for aging parents. So you have two brothers and yes. no sisters. Now, maybe it's a little unfair because you're also a medical professional and your brothers are not, but um, how, what, how involved are you kind of in these discussions with your parents or involved in their medical, you know, whatever comes up for them versus your brothers? Or do you feel like there are expectations of you that they don't have of the, the brothers in relation to their health care or their, their future arrangements? I think that's a very interesting question because I think I am everybody's power of a, a power, medical power of attorney. And I think part of that is I'm not the executor of the will, but I'm, I'm the power, medical power of attorney because I think that my parents know that I can understand the system and I can explain what's happening to them. And I'm also very committed to carrying out their wish wishes. And we've also discussed as a family, like before my mom, before my mom's husband died, I actually talked to him and I knew that my mom's my mom is still living, but her wishes are very clear about um, not prolonging her life and not having a feeding tube. And, and I asked all of those things. I think when you agree to be someone's medical power of attorney, 
that you need to be very clear with them um, what they want you to do. And so I would run through a bunch of different scenarios with my mom and ask her how she felt about different things because my grandmother, when she had her stroke, actually refused to have a feeding tube even for a short period of time. And I said, you know, mom, that would be a little unusual to do that um, because most of the time when you've had a stroke, you, may, you don't need a feeding tube for that long and you can start eating. And so grandma was willing to not have nutrition provided and maybe die in a week or two, you know, rather than have a tube. And I said, I need to know if you feel the same way. And she said, yeah, that's, that's the way I feel. And I said, okay, then I can have that conversation with the physician in the intensive care unit if that's what you want. But your husband, if, while he's living, also needs to be on board with that. So who was the medical power attorney for her second husband? Um, she was. She was. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So if you're in a family that isn't necessarily super open about having these conversations, I know you have this gift of being very direct and, and being very good at crucial conversations. How did you approach your mom to talk about this? I mean, I can't imagine she called you up and said, hey, let's talk about feeding tubes. Like, where, how did this happen? So my mom sent us all a copy of her will. Just out of nowhere? Like, did you know yeah. this was happening? Well, she probably warned me on the phone and said, hey, this is coming. And so this very fairly bland document shows up that doesn't have a whole lot of information. And of course, I want to drill down and know exactly, because I know my mom and my mom has very strong opinions about death and dying and feels that she, I mean, my mom has, you know, read information about the Hemlock Society and she feels she doesn't at all feel like she wants her life prolonged. And so I needed to know... Wait, what's the Hemlock Society? <laughs> the Hemlock Society, we maybe shouldn't be talking about, but it's actually a society that believes in assisted suicide. Oh, interesting. And so they, they put different recipes online um, in... I don't know if it was Socrates. Someone used Hemlock to, to poison themselves. Oh, it's like, so that's like a substance. Yes. Oh, okay. And so it, yeah. And so she would read about these things. She just felt very strongly that I think she wanted some agency about her own life and the manner in which she was going to die. So when you say you got a will, cause I'm thinking of two different documents. I'm thinking of a will and testament of like, what's going to happen to the estate and your, your belongings. And then there's a living will or an advanced directive that is saying, if I'm in the hospital and there's whatever percent chance of recovery, do this. So she sent you, when you got this email, what was in it? Was it the- Both of those documents. Both of them. So mm-hmm. this was a one fail, like- Yes, here it together. is. Here it is, and it's like- To all my children. And how old was she when she wrote this? Um, I think she was probably, I know for a long time that she had had a will, because she was very open about that. And when she remarried, she said to me, you know, it's possible with lack of foresight and planning that the children from an original marriage can both be disinherited. Interesting. And it's possible because if both of the spouses die before um, their new spouses and they leave everything to their new spouses, um, it's possible that the children from the original marriage can be completely disinherited. And she said, I don't, I don't want that to happen to you. And also she and her husband married um, much later in life when they were established and, and her husband had no children. 
And so, I mean, I, I was very happy that she felt like she could discuss that with us and talk about her arrangements and, and what she wanted. And she was very specific about she wanted to be cremated and she, you know, where her, you know, cremains should be placed. And they were all very reasonable su suggestions that we could execute. But when the living will document arrived, I had very specific questions about it because... So it didn't cover every scenario, right? No. These don't typically... I mean, they have some basics in there, but you're a physician that has seen every, every instance of healthcare, you know, um, uh, how would you say, like different, you know, progression of diseases. And we have seen people that have what you and I would call fates worse, worse than death. Yes. Right? That there are people that can survive things that maybe live in conditions that you and I would think, you know, maybe quality of life would be so low, but how, um, so was it your medical background that spurred you to, I guess it's hard to say, right, but to go and ask more questions and how open was she to this kind of nitty gritty discussion? Because I think there are people listening right now that are cringing, thinking I could never talk to my mother about where we're going to spread her <laughs> cremains. Her and cremains. so what is it about you or your family or your mom or that relationship? Or is it like, can you, can you give me an idea sort of where this comes from? Because I, again, I, I think there are so many people out there that think there is no way that that conversation is ever going to happen between me and, and my parent. But that understandably, you know, you're saving yourself so much heartache. You're trying to yeah. do right by her, yes. right? You're trying to serve her at a time when she might not be able to serve herself, which I think is a very honorable thing to do. But it does take some extra um, challenging conversations yes. ahead of time. So talk more about that. So... What that does, I think when someone asks you to be their medical power of attorney, is you ask them, well, what does that mean for you? And there are many um, conversations that can come out of that discussion. Um, and, and part of that, I think, if their spouse is still alive, is to, to be clear that you don't want to get into a fight with their spouse. Um, if I mean, I was very clear that whatever decision that her husband made, if she was in a terminal condition that I would respect um, and that I would not oppose if he wanted to take her off life support because I knew, because we'd had this conversation before and I knew that was important to her and I knew that he understood it and would respect it and that I would also do that. And I would deal with my brothers if they didn't agree with it. So I felt like it was an enormous amount of trust and that in order for me to be worthy and to honor that trust, I had to ask much deeper questions um, and talk about different scenarios. And also since she had been at the bedside and had witnessed her mother, she knows, because she was there, what that means. You know, when you have a stroke and you decide, I'm not gonna have a feeding tube. And so I could, ask, I could actually say to her, you know, if the same thing happens to you that happened to grandma, do you not want a feeding tube? And she said, no. So it was very clear that I could execute that. If I went, if I have to go to the hospital at some point, I could say that, you know, I think what's hardest for families is when there's an intensive care physician looking at them saying, you know, what do you want me to do? And they have absolutely no idea. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you said that because one of the reasons I want these stories to get out there and, and the voices particularly of physicians who have lived through this going wrong and seeing thousands and thousands of families 
go through that exact situation and how much of it might be, um, if you think about honoring that person in that moment who's grieving, right? Even if the person is obviously fighting for their life and maybe has a good chance of surviving, you're grieving the life you had five minutes before you found this information out. And to ask that person in in their state, in their cognitive state, you know, should we put a breathing tube? That to me, that that's a very, <clears throat> a, a very challenging question. Um, yeah. And having, and, and I'm trying to give some voice and some um, structure to the courage that it might take to have these conversations ahead of time, um, as scary as they might sound, or as superstitious as you might be that you can't talk about that because then it will happen. I think it's almost the opposite. It's like, you know, like when you pack for your kids, you're like, well, if I don't pack it, then if I don't pack the extra diaper, then, you know, we're going to have the, the issue. So I'll pack for this. And so thinking this way of our responsibility as professional women who are trying to balance our families and our careers and, and our parents, I think it's almost an ounce of difficult conversations is worth a pound of absolute terror and, and confusion. And you're not in the right state when you're standing across from an intensivist in the ICU to make those decisions. So it's so ironically it doesn't it, it sounds like it's it's a difficult conversation to have. I mean, did you have stress in talking about it? Now I know you, I have to be fair and remind my listeners that you're a very strong person, you're very gifted at direct conversations, but was there a part of you that felt like this was icky or gross or like almost like, you know, some people might say, I, I use the word superstition, like we speak it into the universe and just like it was with your grandmother, like that's exactly what will happen. And then, yeah. you know, we'll be in the situation or did you find it more matter of fact? Or like, how did you get to a place where that conversation could happen? Well, back to my other grandmother who didn't want to face death, that, that was actually one of her, fami- her famous lines. She would always say, Trace, don't put that out in the universe. She used to always say that to me. Like, if you if you speak it, if you think it, it will happen. And I'm sort of the opposite. I'm like, how can I represent you if I don't know what your thoughts and feelings are about this particular situation? And what people don't understand is that the default in medicine is always a full court press. Right. And so if you don't want that, if you don't truly understand what that means, you know, a prolonged intensive care stay, lots of medications, being up all night. If you don't truly understand what that means, well, ask, because I can tell you what that's like. Um, And perhaps that's not what you want. And if I'm an advocate for someone, then I have to know what you want me to advocate for. How has this informed, like, so your children are how old right now? They are 20 and 16. So um, how do you feel like, has any part of you thought, I want to model for them, like taking these actions with my parents, like I want them to, I want to normalize that so that when they, it comes time for them to maybe be my power of attorney or something, has that even crossed your mind yet or they're too young for you to think like that? I think that as long as they're dependent on me, they can't think through things in that way because they can't see me as a separate person and right um i i don't think that they see me as even though i'm an older parent um i don't think they see me as someone who's necessarily old who's who's really facing those life decisions um but funny story when i was 
having my first child, I actually wrote a document that I gave to one of my practice partners before I gave birth. And I told her that I wanted her to show up and make decisions for me um, because I had already decided if I had some sort of catastrophic complication from an epidural and I was you know, permanently comatose or brain dead that I was very clear with her how, how I wanted you know, things to proceed. And I did not want um, you know, my husband to have to make that decision um, and that I was not going to live in that state you know, I thought that through already. And she was a brain injury specialist in the practice. And I said, Oh, interesting. I, I know that you're going to understand this yes. <laughs> and that I'm being clear with what my wishes are. And even if you can't execute it, if you don't have legal power, even though I've given you this letter, you can say, I have had this conversation with her and I would, I know what she wants. So you were how old when you had 34, 34. So you're a 34 year old, healthy, former college athlete. Yes. Right? Who had no known, you know, reason to necessarily be concerned about this childbirth and your thinking ahead of, yes. of a potential future self. And I, and I love to talk about <clears throat> this type of thinking as exercising self-care. Can you talk about that? What so, do you think about that? So like, so I, never, I never thought about it as self-care. I thought I, I was being a little catastrophic at the time, but it was a situation in my residency that actually occurred, and we, we did actually take care of a young woman who'd had a catastrophic um, complication from an epidural and dropped her blood pressure so low that she had a brain injury. And so I had actually witnessed that um, during my training, and I was like, okay, I, I know what I'll do in that situation, you know. I want to talk about that a little bit because I think, um, I know not all of our listeners are <clears throat> physicians, but one of the unique experiences of being a physician is being, ex especially in the type of uh, medicine that we do, um, being exposed to extraordinary, extraordinarily rare outcomes. And it kind of biases you towards thinking of the worst. And I remember <clears throat> I was a medical student rotating um, up in Dallas and trying, you know, when you're a medical student doing an away rotation, you're trying to impress everybody and be, you know, the model medical student, future doctor. And, um, I had this wonderful attending and this wonderful resident I was working with, and I had just started our rehab rotation and we walked in and we saw our first patient and it was a young mother who had gone and gotten a breast augmentation, um, and had had a stroke intraoperatively and she was in her early 30s and woke up in the room and was coming to terms that the left side of her body did not work yes and it was she was in a mental state such that it was almost like groundhog day and so she would sort of understand it was there and then she was kind of go out of it for a while again this was a large stroke and then sort of reimagine this and this this terror of waking up I'm probably scaring everybody we're talking to, but, but I think this is important. And, and I remember, I don't know, doing an about left, running to the bathroom and vomiting. Yeah. And I thought if anybody saw me in this bathroom vomiting, they'd think I could never be um, a brain injury physician. I could just certainly never be a doctor. And I remember thinking, you know, there's got to be some grace for sort of adjusting to horrific life outcomes and how it sort of rotates or, or shades how 
people in medicine understand advanced directives, how they understand outcomes, not in a sort of like, um, how would you say, like a histrionic way, or I don't, I don't even know if I like that word, but this melodramatic, like, you know, the worst thing that can happen, it's almost like this is an outcome. This is a, poss- this is a non-zero possible outcome. And the way I care for myself is by being prepared for this, preparing my family for this. And, and I'm not sure people think that, but I, I think, um, and just as we're talking and we talk about, you know, the, the, the big focus now on wellness and sort of resilience and mindset, and we really need to broaden the definition of what that looks like for professional women, because you can get really lost in sort of the yoga and the, you know, meditation, which I'm not saying those, those are excellent tools for this. But it's so much bigger than that, right? And it's like, how are you advocating for yourself? So I think of this 34-year-old you, you know, writing this paper, going to a colleague, having this discussion, and how out of body it might have felt, because you're probably, what, eight or nine months pregnant at this time. And you're doing this. And I think of this like, what if we had a larger definition of self-care and what that looked like for us? And that's not only doing that for ourselves, but then allowing some space for the people that we love, whether it's an aging parent or maybe it's a disabled sibling that you take care of and, and giving um, credence to having these conversations ahead of time in a, in a you know, calm setting, in a setting that they can be themselves too, right? That they can make decisions that are sound um, because we work with so many people with what we do every day that are not making sound decisions that are not you know, advocating for themselves in ways that they normally would have because of a brain injury or a stroke or something else. Um, and so we see just how quickly that you can lose agency. And I love that word that you use because that's really what you're doing is you're protecting your own agency in a moment where you can't exercise it. Yes. Um, and to me, being entrusted with being somebody's medical power of attorney, um, that's part of it. Um, but I, I can't tell you just in my own experience in medicine, how many times somebody seems to have nominated a medical power of attorney and not told them. Yeah. And so we're producing, you know, a document for a sister that lives in, you know, 10 States away and you call them and they're like, who, what, who are you talking about? Right. And so it's almost this, you know, um, this, this practice of like, we need to maybe, you know, empower that document is more than just a document. It's, it's the beginning of a conversation is what, what comes to me about that. I, I think that a lot of people who are not in medicine live in the world of this couldn't happen to me. And once you become a physician and you're on the front line and you see things that happen to people very randomly, sometimes not so randomly, and you realize at any time that it could actually happen to me. I, I think there's also, um, this, is, this is kind of maybe getting more into um, theory, but I think there's this idea, I, I would say that the people, I, that my colleagues in medicine probably have the most strict or restrictive advanced directives you would see. It'd yes. be the opposite of what you would think. So you think a physician would be like, oh no, you're going to pump this medication into me and you're going to cut this open and then you're going to, you know, pump my chest for this long and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think when you get the privilege that it is to live next to death, um, you become, it it becomes a different 
entity to you. I don't know if that makes sense, but this idea that, you know, it's the most inevitable thing that there is and there's a good way to die. Um, yes. And I know that sounds dramatic and probably jarring for some people, but I, I think of that, um, and I know this is, sounds really morbid to a lot of people, but I think of that for my parents too. Um, we were going to go hot air ballooning in Mexico last year. And a friend of mine, a good friend of mine said, oh my God, wouldn't that be terrible if you died in a hot air balloon over the pyramids in Mexico City? And I was like, I don't, that sounds like a pretty badass way to go, actually. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. I mean, the sunset right. over the pyramids, the I don't know. What's the alternative, right? And oh, so, I want to be COVID on a ventilator in an intensive care unit. Oh, no, I don't know. Not but, so much. But I think of this like, I think we are such, our culture is so focused on prevention of death at all costs and we see these extreme measures taken to extend the ounce of life that's left and that's almost you know a highly celebrated thing and and it's part of a physician burnout too which is we're yes. you know kind of incrementally extending you know fighting these natural processes in life i mean the one thing that is inherently inevitable in all people which is to die it's like you and i are in a profession that's like meant to prevent this as long as possible, as long as it makes sense, we kind of lose sight of that. And so, um, you know, as hard as it would be to talk about my parents passing away, I have this, I have this really morbid thought, and I hope my dad's not listening to this, but my grandfather died working on a bulldozer. He had a heart attack doing what he loved on a bulldozer. Somebody found him, um, and he had been dead for a couple of hours, and that was it. And it was devastating to us, but he also had full faculties and function up until that day. And I think about it as like, okay, there are worse, worse ways that this can happen. And, you know, I think he was 68, which is maybe just shy of the life expectancy of a male in America is around 72. Um, for women, it's closer to 78. And so I'm thinking, you know, it's horrible. I, I don't mean to be dismissive of the grief that would come at the loss of a parent, but I don't want to lose sight of the importance of advanced directives and conversations and allowing that to also be another way to serve people. And I don't want to make this podcast all about, you know, your parents dying and that would be a total Debbie Downer, but I think that weighs on people. And you described this, um, we were talking about this a couple days ago and you said, Sometimes there's just this weird fog, right, that sets in. And I don't know exactly what I'm worried about, but my parents are aging and my kids are, you know, in very crucial developmental points in life. And I'm also supposed to incidentally be, you know, at the top of my career at this point. So kind of early 50s. And that just seems like a lot. Um, so how do you deal with that? Because you're sort of in the middle of, you know, advancing in your career, you have children who still need you, you're a single parent, um, and then you also have, you know, parents that are aging. So like, how, how do you feel like this fits in your brain? I think, I, I feel very lucky that I can have open conversations with both of my parents. I also feel very lucky that my parents are relatively healthy for people who are in their 80s. My right. mom um, is still living independently and my dad and stepmom actually travel quite extensively and are extremely active. And so I don't really have any caregiving responsibilities towards them. What I, what I do feel acutely is that time is limited 
right? So they're both 80s, so they they're both have lived beyond what is considered to be normal life expectancy, average life expectancy. So I do feel this sense of pressure to have experiences to maybe show up for family functions or I really like traveling with my dad and stepmom and to just see them and be with them. And I noticed that the time that we used to spend doing things now, we spend a lot of time talking and I'll ask my dad a lot about, well, tell me more about your dad, you know, my grandfather and tell me, you know, there was just some whole family histories and stories that I, that I didn't know about. And I'm, I'm finding myself very interested in learning about all aspects of my family before they're before they're gone so let me ask you a question how um knowing that your parents are still relatively healthy so you can have experiences with them how do you know it's enough do you feel like i know you're particularly close with your dad and you you seek his advice on things and and i love your dad too he's he's really fun to talk to um how, how do you decide in your brain? I know you have demands from your children, from your job, from, you know, other things in life. And, and how do you get to some end of a week or a month and say, I spent enough time talking to my dad? Is that something you inherently know? Do you always feel like I'm not spending enough time with him? Time is running short. You know, he could go any minute. And do you put that kind of pressure on yourself? Or is it like organic? Like you call your dad once a week and that seems enough. Like, how do you know? Like, how do you decide that? I think that I just have this sense of uh, reaching out and saying, I want to talk to him today. And they also travel a lot. And so they will be unavailable for periods of time, like several months, um, where I don't see them. Like, they are living in Hawaii for the next three months or... um, Last year, they took an extended trip to to um, Egypt and Saudi Arabia and Israel. So, you know, for those periods of time, which are sometimes, you know, several months, um, I may not hear from them. And I do feel a bit of a gap when I can't talk to them. And I also feel like they're a great example of how to live your best life when you're older and stay active and they play tennis and they just seem really happy and they're people that worked really really hard all of their lives and so it's really great to see them enjoying everything that they work so hard for and i think they're a good example of you know sort of redefining what aging parents are when your own parents are traveling and playing tennis more than you're able to do yes. <laughs> at this time in your yes. life so I think that's really interesting. Um, so you, you don't have sort of this lingering sense that you should be spending more time with him or like, has it ever crossed over into, oh my gosh, I should be, you know, taking two weeks off of work and going to Hawaii with them, which I know you've done before, but uh-huh. um, like, where's the limit for you? Like, how do you find that balance? I mean, I know you're working full time. Um, you still have a kid at home. Like, what is that conversation like in your head? How does it not veer into, oh my God, they're 80 and they're traveling to, you know, this really beautiful part of the country. I'm going to stop what I'm doing and go do it. I know there's practical limitations to that, but like, what is that conversation like? I, well, we've talked about that and they, they have said to me, you know, we are, we're reaching a time where we know that we have an end 
and we don't know when that end will be. Maybe in a hot air balloon. Just maybe, tell them right? To go. Or, right, right. So I, they, they, they are feeling that their lives are more compressed and that the end is nearer. And you know, I asked my dad, "Well, how long do you think you're going to live?" And he says, "I'm going to live till I'm 100." And you know, he does have. I think his mom lived until she was in her mid 90s. So that could be a very realistic expectation. Also, given the fact that he is really healthy. Um, so I, I, I look at it like they are also creating some, some awareness and are open to having conversations that they know that their time is limited. And my family always was focused on experiences and not things growing up. So we didn't have a lot of toys. We didn't have fancy cars or boats or, but we did things together. And when we were younger and we were living overseas, we traveled. We went to Europe and Asia and Africa and all these incredible experiences. And so we have experiences. That's why I will go to Hawaii with them, you know, for two weeks. Um, you know, my family this summer is going to South Africa and my brother's going and some of my stepmom's kids are going and I was invited and I thought about it, but my son, um, who's in high school did not want to go. And I just felt like this wasn't the right time. And so I, I'm not going to join them on the trip to South Africa. Um, but you know, hopefully that maybe there'll be another time when they want to go back. Cause they said that was a, a life changing trip for them. And they also had invited me to go to Israel and Egypt with them. But again, I still have a child that, you know, requires my presence and love and oversight. So I, I'm not, Oh, pesky children. Uh, yes. Requiring that. Yes. So I, I'm not, you know, I'm not at a point in my life where I can just take off for two weeks and my vacation schedule tends to mirror the schedule of my children's vacation from school. I, I'm going to ask you a question and it's okay for you to say it. Maybe it's too uncomfortable. And I'm going to speak from a perspective that the vast majority of people, I would include myself in this group that, um, would not necessarily have parents that are, that are in any position whatsoever to, you know, go into this sort of step care independent living or provide private care duty for themselves if that's what they want to do. It's it's pretty much either you have private funding to do that or you've you know saved or planned your retirement or or had successes in life to be able to do that. And honestly, the it's it's kind of a binary route or it's sort of the you have what you have to retire, but you're going to spend through that and go through a Medicaid process should you need some sort of assist, you know, uh, nursing home placement or something like that. Um, and so my question is, if, if you're a child of a parent who has, say, a nest egg, uh, $500,000, a million dollars, something like that, and there's sort of this, I would think this setup of this weird competition between um, an estate, a money that's theirs that could be inherited and then also a medical condition that could arise that would run through this. And I've had other people talk about this conundrum of sort of obviously hoping that their parent like has just enough money to run through this in their life to basically have nothing left at the end, um, but not um, enough money to where they could live off the interest of their own wealth. And so, um, and maybe this is an unfair question, but I always wondered when I'd heard these stories about it, not knowing knowing that this would not necessarily be my story, but this idea that there's sort of this competition between their health and their 
placement needs, right? And the survival of any amount of estate for you or your, your children or grandchildren or whatever, does that ever cross your mind? Like, how do you think about that? Well, I always think of it as my parents' money is theirs to do with as they please. And that they have always been very generous with their resources and their time and that I should expect nothing. And that I should save and mm, prepare for my own retirement and how I want to live, but that they don't owe me anything. And so I don't, I think of it like it belongs to them, it's their estate, and it's designed to care for them when they age in whatever way they choose. And if we know that taking care of my, my neighbor had 24-hour care for her elderly mother, and that was $10,000 a month. And so if you're going to do that and have, you know, a wandering adult who's up at night and you have to have someone in the home at night making sure that they don't, you know, walk out the back door, um, it's extremely expensive to do that. And, you know, I, I think that that will be certainly a discussion that will have to take place as they become less able to to do things and, and not quite as mobile um, is who's going to facilitate them staying in the home and, and do with you feel, what resources. And sort of with this regard for their estates, which are now separate because they're divorced, um, do you feel like your siblings have that same sentiment? Like, or have you come across colleagues or friends that have had drama about this topic before? Very much so. I think also when there's a blended family, um, that there can be a lot of of hurt if there is not a discussion about how things will be divided, especially when there's kids from both parents. Um, and that can be a source of a lot of pain if people feel like they're being disinherited. You know, my dad and stepmom have been married a long, long time. And so they they were very clear with us that everything would be divided between my stepmom's three kids and then my dad's three kids and that we would all share equally in the estate. The other thing that they did that was phenomenally interesting to me is that they wrote down all their list of most valuable possessions onto an Excel spreadsheet and they sent it to all of us and they said, what do you want? Interesting. And we want everybody to sign up for the top three things that you want from our estate. And was here, it like first come first serve? How did you do that? How? So we, well, what they did is they took the top three items and because they wanted, they were going to have people choose. But what they, are these like baseball cards or like what are no, they? No, they were like pieces of art. Okay. Um, they were um, like my, I think my dad had Civil War pistols at one point, like pieces of jewelry. Um, you know, they don't have a lot of high value in terms of dollar, but they have things that they each brought into the marriage that mean something for each respective family. Like my stepmom, her mom painted pictures and she wanted to make sure that her children would get their grandmother's artwork if that's what they wanted. Right. And I felt the same way. Like when my parents lived in Japan, there were pictures that they had purchased. Um, two of them they purchased because they looked like me when I was young. And so I said, I want 
the, the, the portraits, the Japanese portraits, and I want this picture of this tree um, because that is what I remember growing up. I remember when my parents bought those items together. Um, but what was very interesting is that out of all the six kids, not one of us had any items that overlapped. Like oh, we wow. each picked something that we thought was valuable to us and no other child picked that same item. Wow. And some people didn't even respond, I guess. And like I told my stepmom, I'd love to have a piece of jewelry that you give to me, whatever it is that has meaning. And the rest of it, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, but that, that process of, I think of divvying up belongings, um, my stepmom and my dad had gone through a very difficult process when their mother, when his mom died about bickering over things and they didn't want us to bicker. So they also put something in the will that if anybody challenged the will, um, and filed a lawsuit that they would get a dollar. That is awesome. That's actually written. And we were all told that if you file, you know, a legal, you know, challenge to this will, um, you will get a dollar. Wow. Which I think is brilliant. Yeah. You know, they, they want all of us to know you're being treated the same and there's, there's no favorites here. And this is the way it's going to be. Hey everyone, it's Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you really enjoyed the podcast. I am here to let you know I can be found on RebeccaTapiaMD.com. You can come over there to learn about my new course launching this summer, dealing with mindset for aging parents, getting prepared, all the good stuff, sharing my opinions and life lessons. Uh, also could just join my email list so I can share more about my thoughts about these podcasts and more insights there. Thank you so much for being here.